Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin glass for prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study, and we ask that your spirit will join us, that we can grow ever closer to you in both knowledge and experience of your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I received this email this week. You may find this interesting. So very much have I been blessed by your ministry after watching with uh, profound insights of God's love, illuminating in much more tangible way than ever before. I would like to share many of your DVD presentations with family and friends. I am not a lifer Adventist, but came to be a seeker of truth as an adult about 15 years ago and was baptized into the church from a Lutheran background. Since then, I have been acclimated to the SDA system of worship and thinking to the point of becoming depressed and overwhelmed with obsessive thoughts of not being fit for heaven, scared to the point of anxiety, panic attacks of the judgment, and daily trying to figure out what more I should do or not do to become ready for the second coming. After saturating myself through the years with proof Bible texts to support all the fundamental beliefs and every publication that Ellen White wrote, I became a narrow-minded, critical, and arrogant, yet well-liked Adventist. I taught Sabbath school, was a Bible worker, and was elder's wife, as well as holding other reputable positions in the church. I became so enthralled with reaching the plateau of Christian perfection that I allowed myself to take on a martyr role and continue in an abusive marriage for many years, because that was considered unconditional agape love, and God hates divorce, as my pastor reminded me. After emotionally, after emotionally breaking down, I did divorce and mournfully stopped for about a year attending church for lack of any sympathy or support and abandonment I felt by my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I cried in isolation for God to break, for God to bring back the joy of my salvation that once reigned in my heart years ago. After much counseling from the Domestic Violence Center, who very much respected my spiritual perspective, I began a new journey of discovering a God who loves, who loved me for me. I now attend a small SDA church in a different state that truly knows how to love unconditionally each other's quirks and all. A new sister in the Lord gave me your DVD on the God-shaped brain, and it ignited further study on your website. I still struggle at times with the realization that God loves God's love being so calming and peaceful and restorative that I almost feel guilty for not feeling guilty <laughs> when I bask in its freedom. I press on. Please send me your DVDs and stuff so I can share. Uh, I'm anxious to smile as I share. Thank you. Isn't that nice? All right, uh, we're starting in the new quarter on Proverbs, lesson one, which is called The Call of Wisdom. And the first paragraph states the following. From Eden onward, the root of human tragedy lies in wrong choices. And then a quote out of the book Education, page 25. Man lost all because he chose to listen to the deceiver rather than to him who is truth, who alone has understanding. By the mingling of evil with good, his mind had become confused. By the mingling of evil with good, his mind had become confused. Do you hear what was the cause of the confusion? What method caused confusion here? What was it? Believing a lie. Yes, believing a lie which resulted in mingling... Evil and good. Mingling of evil and good. How did this happen in Eden? Russell was suggesting because lies were told about God. It wasn't that God was all bad. It was just a little bit bad. Mingling the evil and the good. You see? The question is, how does this happen today? Do you see mingling of evil and good in Christian thought and teachings today that cause confusion? God is love, but he's also just. Good one. Yes. I see it in the movies or trailers for movies or stuff like that that are supposedly religious. But when you, if you look at them to see what they're actually presenting, they're presenting a very arbitrary God that's bent on dis- distru- destroying people, etc. So under the guise of a religiously wonderful movie, they're actually presenting a really false God. And, and we wouldn't necessarily be surprised about that coming out of the movie industry. But some of those movies, were you talking about some of the movies that are actually promoted and produced by churches? No, we're talking about mainstream movies. And mainstream movies, okay. So within the church, though, how about mixing God's design law with human-imposed law? Mixing the two together. This week, uh, I've been on, on a blog with some people who promote the, the, the imposed law view, the penal substitutionary view, and it was actually written in a blog by a theologian in our church that God does have natural law, like laws of health, but his moral laws are imposed and have no natural consequences, thus God is required to inflict punishments. 
functionally, do you understand? Functionally, then, they're saying that God's law is no different than created beings make. Just a list of rules that require external in, uh, 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 punishment and, and enforcement. This is mixing the good and the evil. All sin must be punished. Yes, this is a desire of ages. Uh, in the opening of the Great Controversy, Satan alleged that the law of God cannot be obeyed. That, uh, that um, if man should, should disobey, he could not be forgiven. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Desire of Ages 7.62. So this mixing, there's, there's one way it's mixed. This idea that God's moral law is arbitrary, not design law. Another one. God, well, I think this is what Laurie was getting to. God's mixing God's freedom and coercive practices. The idea that in Jesus Christ we are free. But if you don't accept Jesus, he'll kill you. Just a deviation from his plan. Yes, exactly. Or we have freedom to choose to obey God or not. But if we choose not to obey, then he will torture and kill us. And we can never escape it other than by submitting to what he says. Is that freedom? No, it's coercion. So it's a mixture. Causes it's confusing. This is why the mind gets confused. Here's another one: the mixing by mixing two characters within the Godhead. Jesus is the God who loved us so much that He died for us, but the Father is the God who is angry and wrathful and requires a legal payment, so He won't kill us. We mix two characters within the Godhead. They're not actually one. Or by mixing forgiveness with legal payment. Think about it. If you forgive somebody, somebody owes you a debt, and you forgive them their debt, can you now collect it? If you collect the debt, can you then turn around and say, now that I've been paid in full, I forgive your debt? <laughs> well, this is what they teach. And I actually put this on the blog, and the theologian responded back. This is a quote. Um, how do they put it? Um, oh, God can forgive because he is the one who collected the payment. That's a quote from the theologian. He can forgive. He's the only one who can forgive because he's the one who's collected the payment. How does that work? Exactly. You see how that's confusing. You have to then not think. You have to go, that doesn't make sense. God's ways are, are not my way. Uh, God's ways are higher than ours. We just take that on faith and it just shuts down the entire development of character and maturing in Christ. This is mixing good and evil. It's not true. How about mixing life and death in the character of God? God is the source of all life. He is the creator. But he is also the source of inflicted death for those who disobey. Death doesn't come from sin as the Bible teaches. No, no, no. Death, uh, de- uh, sin when full grown doesn't bring forth death as James says. Not, not according to this group. The, th- the penal view, no. God, in order to be just, he must inflict death. He must execute the sinner. So now we have a God who is not only the source of life, he's the source of death, mixed in the character of God. This is a mixture of good and evil. Do you see the mix? Do you see how commonly it's accepted? It is so deeply rooted, I pointed these mixtures out, they, couldn't, they absolutely couldn't see it. They actually embraced every one of these and say, no, no, you are a binary thinker. You can only think in black and white. Um, you, 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 the reality is that the universe is much more subtle than that. And we need to see all levels of, of truth. You know who, who Ellen White said was the subtle one? The deceiver. The one who used subtlety to deceive? Yes. And, and why is there a, a black and a white? Because the Bible actually says there are some things that are antithetical. You can't get fresh water out of a sewer. This is a metaphor from James. You can't do it. And so this mixture, they defend as actually having a healthier view of God. Is it any wonder Christianity as, as a landscape, as a body of believers, is confused? It's described in Revelation at the end of time by, as Babylon, because Babylon is confused. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. In Proverbs 1, 1 through 6, the title, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, establishes a link between the pro- this proverb and 1 Kings 3, 5 through 14. In, King, in Kings, as in the book of Proverbs, Solomon is presented as the son seeking wisdom from God. In addition to both referring to Solomon as the son of David, 
The two texts share significant common wording, understanding, wisdom, judgment. Not only do these parallels confirm Solomon as the one behind the composition of the book, they also show Proverbs is, is dealing with the human quest for wisdom from God. And notice how the words in this paragraph are used. Judgment. How is judgment used in this paragraph? What does it mean in this paragraph? Pertaining to wisdom. Yes, discernment, right? Discernment, understanding, wisdom. This is an excellent use of the word judgment. Excellent use of the word judgment. Can the judgment mean something else, though? The word judgment. Justice. It can mean a judicial proceeding, right? It can mean the, uh, a judicial event in which a person is actually judged. My judgment or he's going to judgment. Or we stand in the judgment, right? It can mean these things. Can you think of a place in Scripture where the word should be interpreted to mean wisdom and discernment, but instead is interpreted to mean a judicial proceeding? Can you think of a place in Scripture where the word judgment is used and should be interpreted as wisdom and discernment, but instead is taught as a judicial proceeding? The three angels' messages. messages, Revelation 14. And connected to that, because it's talking about the same event, Daniel 7. Daniel 7 and Revelation 14. These texts are very integral to something we call the investigative judgment. Which has, which some people present as God and others in heaven reviewing record books to determine the fate of the people on earth and to determine the amount of punishment the wicked must suffer before it's inflicted upon them. And this views the entire passages through the lens of an imposed law construct, this mixture of good and evil, that God does have arbitrary laws that require this type of an investigation in order for them to be enforced. Rather than viewing the judgment passages of Daniel 7 and Revelation 14 through discernment and wisdom. Well, let's look at the evidence. From one of the founders of our church who actually established and helped build the foundation for the doctrine of the investigative judgment. This is out of a book called Faith I Live By, page 207. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary, brought into view by Daniel 8.14, the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days as presented in Daniel 7.13, and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same event. And this is also represented by the bridegroom coming to the marriage described by Christ in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Same event, guys. Let's get our mind around this. So there are several texts. Let's see what this event is actually describing. Daniel 8, 14. Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel 7 13. Malachi 3, 1 through 4. And the parables of the, of the ten virgins. Daniel 8.14 is merely predicting the time. That's all it gives us. In Daniel 8.14, you get nothing more than the time it's going to happen. Time frame. So you really don't have any other details of what it, what's going to happen at this time, just that this is the time it's going to happen. So we have to look other places for the details. Here's Daniel 7. And let me read to you. And I want you to use your inspired uh, Holy Spirit-led mind to describe for me what's happening. We're going to read Daniel 7, 9, 10, 13, and 14. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. In my vision at night, I I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What do you hear being described in the passage? Coronation. Exactly. This is a not a judicial court. It says the court was seated. This is the royal court. The royal court of heaven was seated and Christ was coronated. But instead, we have a judicial model. We look at court and we think judicial and we think a judge and we think books are legal books and documents and therefore that's what we think is happening. It's not the case. There's a lot going on in that passage. A lot. The rivers of fire and the throne and the 
the the coronation of Christ and the, those you know living in the fire. I mean, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, you spend a lifetime studying. Yeah, and you see the fire isn't harmful to the living beings; it doesn't hurt them, and that Christ comes. But you don't see anything about a courtroom going on here in a legal justice penal system. You have to project all of that in from a preconceived idea before you even go to the, the passage. Let's keep going with some more evidence. And by the way, some of the theologians will argue the word translated court, the Hebrew word, refers to a a judicial proceeding. I've got the references from the um, theological word book of the Old Testament showing that, in fact, it is much broader than that and does mean the entire government of God, meaning the royal court, not the judicial court. So I've just got that reference for anybody who wants to go into the Hebrew. It's in the notes. Some people latch on to the books being opened. Yes. Yes. We'll come to that. We'll come to that. If I don't come to that, make me come to that. Okay, so then we keep reading in Daniel 7, we come to this passage, which some read into it, Daniel 7, 21 and 22. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Now, I just read out of the NIV, pronounced judgment. And so they see this as a pronouncement. He's making a judgment, he's evaluating the records, and he's pronouncing judgment as they're innocent. This is how it's often presented. Let's read the King James. And that's what the King James says. Same passage. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. It goes along with that. Judge rightly. So which is more accurate? This idea that a pronouncement from God, was God was judging and making a pronouncement, or judgment was given, imparted to the righteous. They were given wisdom, discernment, judgment was imparted or given to them, which is more accurate. If you go into the Hebrew, the Hebrew word translated there means to impart or to give. So the King James is actually more accurate in that text. So then you should ask the question, I don't get it. Why, why do the, the saints of God need judgment imparted to them? Why? It's another word for wisdom, discernment. Why do they need that? Well, because the Daniel text tells you there's a little horn power that's waging war against them. What kind of war is it? Of your mind. Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought that Jesus Christ. This is a war which happens in our minds over knowledge, thoughts, focusing on Centering on the issue of who do you know God to be? And this little horn power was waging war and winning. Paul brings it together for us. And this is quite profound. When you connect the dots and put the pieces together, it's quite profound. This is out of Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. And Paul, instead of using the term little horn, uses the, the term man of sin or man of perdition. It says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. Now get this so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, did this man of sin Paul's talking about ride up into heaven and knock Jesus off of his throne up there and start reigning up there? So what temple is it talking about? In your mind. Know ye not that ye are a temple of the Holy Spirit and God dwells in you? So how does this little horn power, this man of sin power, enthrone himself in God's temple? How does he do it? He's doing it all all the time, every day, through the lies that are spread. By getting us to accept God is an imperial dictator who makes up arbitrary rules that he must enforce and must be appeased by the blood payment of his son. And we worship this God. We are worshiping the image of the beast. We're not worshiping Jesus Christ. This is is the temple that needs to be cleansed. I can just tell you the data. You know, the scripture says if you say you, you love the Lord, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar. Or your faith is shown by your works, meaning that true Christian faith transforms the life. Amen. If the life isn't being transformed, it's something wrong with it. Do you know what the data shows on the, on the imposed law construct, the penal substitutionary teaching 
That those who attribute, that worship a God who's authoritarian, dictator, like who must be appeased, there's no difference in child abuse rates in their homes in the general population. There's no difference in spouse abuse rates. There's no difference in genocide. If you remember what happened in um, Rwanda, when they, the Catholics, uh, the Protestants, and the 11% of the population that were Adventist, they all participated in the killing of their own par- par- parishioners and church members and it, it didn't matter what doctrines they believed. The only diver, the, the, the diverging mark between those who killed and those who protected was whether they worshipped a God who was authoritarian and required appeasement. Those people participated in the killing. Those who worshipped a God of love protected, regardless of denomination. So Daniel 8.14 is saying there's 2,300 years until the sanctuary will be cleansed. It's a prophecy saying, hey, and if you, if you know that 2,300-year prophecy, if you go through Daniel, there's a section of that that's cut off. 490 years are cut off for your people. And in that 490-year prophecy, there's a prophecy that the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to do away with the oblations and sacrifices. And so what God is saying, he's got this whole prophecy saying, hey, my son is coming. He's going to provide what's necessary for the salvation of mankind. But after he comes, there's a man of sin that's going to run. There's going to be a counterattack by the devil who's going to take everything my son does for you, and he's going to twist it in such a way that your minds are going to take it in in such a way that you'll end up worshiping the enemy and not worshiping me and my son. And therefore, my sanctuary will have to be cleansed. And it'll be 2,300 years before enough truth about me is recovered that the cleansing can happen. And that's going to have to happen, according to Paul, before the coming of the Lord. Well, Malachi, remember, we started out that one passage that said Malachi 3 describes the same event. Here's Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the... Levites and refine them as gold and silver. Who are the Levites? Priesthood. The priesthood of believers. This is the same event as Daniel 8 14. Who is being cleansed? What's being cleansed? The spirit temple, the priesthood of believers. This is the cleansing that is to take place. And God is cleansing a people from the lies about him that break trust, so when we come back to the truth about him, we're restored to trust, and we open the heart, the spirit is poured out, and we have a new heart and right spirit. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get new motives. We get new character. We are cleansed from the fear and selfishness that drives us. This is what is to be happening during the investigative judgment. We are to be investigating the truth about God and coming to a right judgment about him. See, functionally... When you present God's law and human law is no different. And how does human law function? Rules made up that you have to enforce. When you present God like that, then you put him in the role of being a dictator. And this is Revelation 14 again, the message of the first angel. Same thing. And this is why I think as an organization we have failed to take the three angels' message to the world. Because we have not taken a message where we are to be in awe of God and give him glory by revealing his character on the life because the time is coming even history where people are to, as the Elijah message said, I will send the Elijah before the great coming day of the Lord, uh, choose ye this day. If God is like Baal, worship him. If God is like Yahweh, worship him. This is the final message. We have not presented it so people can say, oh, God is not like this dictator. God is like Jesus. Let's choose him. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas. Come back to worship the designer whose laws are the protocols by which life is built. Stop worshiping the dictator. So Monday's lesson, true education. It asks us to read Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. So let's look at Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. Listen, my son, to your father's instructions and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland of grace. They're a garland of grace to your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, it's, let's, let's lie and wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our house with plunder. Cast lots with us. We will, share, we will all share the loot. My son, do not go along with them. Do not, do not set foot on their path. 
for their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. What do you hear? What do you hear? The general message. What do you hear? Wisdom will do what? What does wisdom do? Protects you. Protects. And, and avoids what? Stupidity. <laughs> he said avoid stupidity. Okay. <clears throat> yes. Uh, one of my first rules, first, don't do stupid things. And the second rule, if you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. Okay. If, if, you, if you made a mistake, if you just stop, do nothing else, you don't get in deeper trouble. Okay. So he says don't do stupid things. Let me think of that. Yes. Comment over here. Yes. Russell. I hear natural law in that passage. Yes, we're going to get to the absolute consequences of behavior. Um, you know, there are two paths. Do you hear to avoid selfishness is wise? To avoid exploiting other people, to avoid hurting others is wise. Don't do it. That's, that's destructive. And then what Russell says, why is it wise not to do this? Because the last 18 and 19, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. But Satan has cast a distortion over the minds of many. So many who read this as the wicked, uh, read this as the wicked create a legal ledger of bad deeds to which God will one day act as executioner and torture and kill them. It's not so, according to Scripture. For the wages of sin is death. Or sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Or Galatians, Galatians, those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction. This is what Proverbs is actually saying. You can't, you can't avoid the consequences of, of doing evil. You can only be healed and cured from the condition in relation with Jesus Christ. The lesson quotes from one of the founders of the church, stating, uh, is that of Advent Home 182. In his wisdom, the Lord had decreed that the family shall be the greatest of all educational agencies. It is in the home that the education of the child is to, be, is to begin. Here is the first school. What do you think is the primary, most basic, most important lesson that the family is to teach the child? Respect. God's love. Shoes well. <clears throat> Others. <coughs> care of others. Okay, I, uh, so respect, care of others, God is love, and I, I, maybe some other things. Yes, I think the most important primary basic lesson from the family is supposed to be love. Infants who are not held, who are not caressed, who are not loved, have altered brains with upregulated fear circuitry, subsequent increased anxiety, uh, more self-referential and, and protective mechanisms that cause social and behavior problems later in life. Uh, we are born infected with fear and insecurity. This is the way we're born from Adam, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. So all infants are interested in self. I've never met a mother who had a child who was actually interested if the mother got her rest at night. It didn't happen. The babies, when they were hungry and wet, wanted to be cared for. Okay? This, is our, this is our focus. They didn't want to be inconvenienced. This is our inheritance from Adam. But the home is to nurture the child in love, true love, which sets healthy boundaries, holds the child accountable, but always in love, always with a goal to protect, always with a goal to restore, always with a forgiving attitude, never with vengeance. The family is to teach the child the meaning of selfless service, as Wendell was saying, of caring for someone more than self. The family is to teach the lesson of community, of connecting, of having a purpose larger than self. The family is to teach God's design for life, of loving parents sacrificing themselves for the welfare of their children, but risking being misunderstood to do what's best for their children when the children aren't old enough to understand. Do you, do you see that the lesson? It's not primarily about A, Bs, and Cs. It's about how life operates. Love is healing and restorative. Selfishness is hurtful and harmful. Selfishness divides the family. Fear divides the family. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 is one of the best. Um, Do you have, you have it? Read it for us. There. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. 
And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to the commandments that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk with them when you are at home, when you are on the road, and when you are going to bed, and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hand and wear them on your forehead as a reminder. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. There's only one person that's with their children that much time, and that's, your, that's us as parents. You know, if we want, God wants us to um, just share so much with our kids, the love that He has for us. That right there is one of the best verses I know. Well said. I think that's right. But how can that then be misunderstood and misapplied? Because there's a judicial set, because it's set into a judicial, and you're looking at it through the wrong view instead of a loving view. It's rules we must do, right? Exactly. You all know what phylacteries are? It said in the passage you read, tie them to your wrists and put them on the door. Phylacteries are where they would take this passage of Scripture and they would put them in a little box and they would tie them to their arms and wrap around seven times here and then wrap one around their head. And the Scripture was then tied to them and they're following the Scripture, you say, by doing. But if you didn't do it, then there's the, you know, then you're out with the Lord and you're a bad person. And if you, many Jewish homes, if you go into the home, on the doorpost will be some little verse or some little Hebrew writing on the doorpost that they will, you know, touch as they go in because it's written on the doorpost. So it can be taken in a way that God gave him these instructions for the purpose of being a reminder. Remind yourself of the love that you're to have for each other. But it can be taken in a forensic application which denudes it of all love and simply becomes a rule one, one must obey. So while it's intended for good, it can be through the selfish heart applied as you know, some type of a legalistic approach. Think about the, the things we've been brought up with in the church that were designed to be helpful like this to remind us of love and God's grace and compassion for us, but became applied in some legalistic way that actually crushed love out of our heart. The letter that I read, remember the letter that I read here today, the email that I read at the beginning of class about this person who converted to Adventism only to have love crushed out of their heart by all the rules they had to keep? And then once they were driven out of their own church for divorcing an abusive, physically abusive husband, they finally found love of God again in the message we're teaching. So if we're concerned about then that, then let's go back and figure out why this was given. Why were they told to do this? Why did God give so many instructions to the children of Israel after Egypt? Exactly. Why? Because where were they coming from? Slavery. Their, their minds were like, the, the, what do you do with a group of people who see the ten plagues of Egypt, walk through the Red Sea on dry ground, see the pillar of fire guiding them at night, a cloud by day, hear the thunderings of fire, and 40 days later are worshiping a golden calf and having an orgy? What do you do with people like that? You get very basic, like you do with your kids. Okay, I, I, I thought I could just tell you to do good and love your brothers and sisters, but now I've got to tell you, stay out of your sister's room without her permission. Okay. Why do you have to say that? Because they're only on level one. There you go. They're only on level one. This is what was going on. So in Education, page 77, listen to the methodology to be used to help our children grow. Listen to this methodology. Because I'm going to tell you, this methodology is rejected by those who hold this penal forensic view. I brought it up, even used this quote, and it was not accepted. Jesus followed the divine plan of education. Jesus followed the divine plan of education. The schools of his time, with their magnifying of things small and their belittling of things great, he did not seek. His education was gained directly from the heaven-appointed sources. From useful work, from the study of scripture, and of nature, and of the experiences of life. God's lessons book. That's the integrative evidence-based approach that we teach. I presented this idea. It was rejected by those who hold that penal view. Because if you take this view... And you integrate the evidences of God through his various threads. You cannot hold to God being a day. It does not work. Certain interpretations of scripture that by themselves, if you go with a certain penal model, you could read them to say that, like the judgment passages. Once you bring in these other evidences of God, they cannot hold anymore. They have to discount those interpretations. That's why they won't allow those other threads in. So consider these lesson books. What do we learn? What is a child to learn from useful work? What are the lessons that we learn from useful work? The law of exertion. 
Law of exertion. Oh, that's a good one. I didn't put that one down. Thank you. Which is, strength only comes through exercise. If you don't exercise, whether it's physical exercise, whether it's mental exercise, you will not grow stronger in your artistic abilities if you don't practice your art, or your music abilities if you don't practice your music, or your language skills if you don't practice speaking. Uh, strength only comes through exertion. This is a good lesson to learn through the work, through useful work. What else? The child learns that he's a valuable member of the family, that others need those services that are provided and that they are a blessing. To them. I like this one as well. So the individual learns that they are useful. Important, valuable, and have worth. And, yes. And they can contribute. They're not just a bump on a log. Mm-hmm. And many, many young people grow up feeling like the third wheel. There's no purpose, that they're just a tag-along, that, that they have no value. And so useful work, that, that not, not in the dictator sense, not in the slave sense. To get that, what you're talking about, think about this useful work. You can have it in the, here's your task, and you come behind checklist, bam, bam, and punish if they don't do it. Or you can have the useful work, meaning this is your responsibility, and they take it over with some ownership, that they're going to take pride in their work. You see the difference? Okay, that's when they do it because they recognize its value to the family and the family needs and depends on what they're doing. Then, yes, it really can help them develop when it's seen as, well, mom says I've got to do it, but there's no purpose and it's just busy work. Then it, then a different dynamic can occur, right? Well, that's why it's important to give children tasks that are obvious and, and meaningful and noticed by people other than themselves and that the family actually depends on that being accomplished yes and this is where i guess growing up on a farm it could be pretty obvious you're gonna go out and milk those cows each morning <laughs> making supper okay other other lessons from useful work other lessons from useful work self-discipline self-discipline Time management. management. See all the very wonderful lessons we can learn from useful work. Self-mastery, which is what you're saying, self-discipline, self-mastery, yes. How about the joy of accomplishment? Is there a joy in accomplishment? Physical conditioning. Physical conditioning. What did you say, Russell? The sense of self-worth and the sense of accomplishment. It is priceless and valuable. It is, exactly. How about the law of cause and effect? If you do nothing, you get nothing. Yeah, there's no, exactly. exactly. So, there's so much lessons to be learned in these works. All right, how about what do we learn from Scripture? Lessons we learn from Scripture. The character of God. What else? How to live our lives on a day to day basis. So, the principles of other centered love and compassion. How about the, the setting in which we live? Does it give us a philosophical framework to understand reality? Does it make a difference to understand that we were created in the image of God, we've been attacked by a vicious enemy who has infected our minds with lies, and there's a controversy, but there's a plan to restore. God loved us so much, he sent his son, and then if we participate with that, we get restored back into health and harmony for eternity. Does that make a difference in believing that we're just evolved from swine? Does the philosophical landscape that the scriptures provide give us a, a value? Because we talked about a certain uh, esteem in, in uh, the joy of accomplishment and achievement. What about the esteem in recognizing who one is as a child of God? We won't recognize that reality without scripture. How about the landscape of the whole problem of sin and, and the solution for it? What lessons do we learn from nature? Giving. Yeah. Independence. Get out in it. Get out in it. <laughs> he said, uh, Wendell said interdependence. Yes, the ecosystems. And that's the law of love. How it's all built to operate together. Giving of each other to support everyone else and to receive in order to continue to give. Yes, it's a beautiful lesson books in nature. We should learn some of the same things we learn in scripture. Yes. The context, the two antagonistic principles of war. We can see them, yep. Mm-hmm. And God is love, God, God appreciates beauty, there's... It should be in perfect harmony. And healing. There are a lot of medicinal plants, for example, meant to heal people. But also we have to choose to learn the right lessons because there's survival of the fittest in the animal kingdom. Right, yes. Yes, and, ha- and yes, there is. And that's, again, 
Paul, that's where the scriptures have to be harmonized with nature because Paul tells us in Romans that all nature groans under the weight of sin. And so sin is infected with an antagonistic principle. That's right. Yes, way in the back. Please ask Tim, what does the problem with your bike teach? <laughs> that we live in a world of chaos and we need an energy source. <laughs> okay. So design law. Nature teaches design law. That's the big lesson. The big lesson is God is the creator. He is the builder of the fabric of the cosmos. And nature does not operate on arbitrary rules. Nature operates on the protocols upon which God has constructed it to operate. And then when you deviate from that protocol, things go wrong. They die. They don't continue to live. Very powerful. Uh, And then what do we learn from the experiences of life? What are the lessons from the experiences of life? Consequences. Consequences, okay. Behavior. This is one of I have to tell a lot of my patients. Believe it or not, a lot of my patients don't know this. And I say this. Behavior has consequences. You realize a lot of people don't know this. And, and, and some of the reasons people don't know this is because they've grown up in situations where they've been rescued from consequence. I was just thinking if you can impose law, you can also impose forgiveness or impose some unconditional or even unworthy forgiveness or whatever. Think about experience. Is there a difference in studying about swimming or skiing? The mechanics of it, the physics behind it. You can study depths about it, the techniques, but actually getting out and doing it. Is there a difference? So what happens? What's the difference between having the knowledge of of all the mechanics and the physics and and all the different things behind those activities and actually doing them? What's the difference? Physiologically in you, what's the difference? Which one causes your development to happen? You can't grow in Christ without experiencing Christ. You have to experience it. You have to participate. You have to apply it. You have to engage it. You have to love others. You have to share truth. You can't just study the theology and not apply it to your life. This is faith without works is dead. Like studying about swimming but never getting in the pool. So what happens in the application, the experience? Development of character. Development of character in the experience. This is part of the, the, remember the lesson books of, of God. Do you see how practical God's lesson books are? I think it also strengthens faith. I mean, when you see provable results happen consistently, your confidence grows, your faith grows. I, I have patients uh, in enmeshed relationships, relationships that are re- driven by fear, fear of a rejection, fear of abandonment, uh, fear of not being loved, fear of not being liked. And so they live in fear, So they, they will uh, and, and false guilt... That person puts on them, and it and it's an oppressive, enslaved type relationship. And I will often say to them, and I try to teach them how to be truthful in a loving way. When somebody puts an unreasonable expectation on them, to reflect it back at that person instead of in a gentle and loving way, uh, and give the other person, and then here's the key: give the other person freedom to be mad at you if they need to be. And I say, if you can experience this, just do this a couple of times and experience it. The freedom is so profound, then it becomes solidified. Cognitively understanding it is one thing, but until you experience it, you don't get over that hurdle of being able to solidify it into your own being. I remember as a kid, at age five or six, we used to go to a friend's home that had a swimming pool, and they had one of those diving boards that was about five feet off the water, and everybody would jump and play and dump the knife off that thing. And uh, I was five or six, and, and, I, and it looked so much fun, I, I wanted to do it, so I ran up there and I ran out to that diving board. And I froze. <laughs> it looked a long way down. I became afraid. And I went, I remember that day. It was, I don't know, seemed like hours. I don't know how long it really was, but I was back and forth, back and forth. And, and my parents were there, and everybody was encouraging me. Finally, when I jumped, it wasn't until I experienced it that the fear went away. When I finally jumped, it was like fun. And I was just like everybody else, just looping around and jumping. But until I experienced it, I watched. I had the evidence of everybody jumping in. It was safe. My parents were telling me they've had all the evidence I need. But until I experienced it, I was still afraid. And this is a Christian journey for many people. We have all the testimony of Christ. We have the testimony of the people, the patriarchs and the prophets. We have testimony of people in church. We have all the evidence. We see people give you But until you experience it, 
you're, you're still not at peace. You don't have the freedom. So, the experiences of life help establish habit as well. Habits make life easy if you have healthy habits. It's really easy to do things once they're habitual, if they're healthy habits. I get up at a particular time pretty much every day, day on, day off, doesn't matter. I have a nice routine, get up, go to my office, on my off days, I get so much work done in my office on my off days from, the, from my downtown office, my, go to my home office, and I'll get up early and I can get so much done before 9 o'clock, the rest of you aren't even up yet. <laughs> but as a habit, it makes it easy. Tuesday's lesson, a call to wisdom. First paragraph, it says, While the sinners lie in wait and lurk secretly, wisdom calls out aloud, cries out, in, uh, cries out in the chief concourses and speaks her words. Wisdom is here personified and her offer is uh, given to man and woman on the street. What is the lesson here between wisdom and what the sinners do, evil? What is the, what is the, contrast methodolo- the contracted, contrasted method, methods going on here? Wisdom is open to examination. Wisdom loves the light. Wisdom loves to be examined, just like truth. Yes. Deceit only exists in darkness. Yes. Okay. So um, think think that through with with the approaches to the, the the theological debate ongoing. Yeah, we take the approach here that truth loses nothing by close examination. So if you have concerns about what we're teaching, then show us. Let's, let's have an open discussion. Uh, let's have, uh, on this online blog twice, I've offered to say, you know what, why don't we have an open discussion in front of a live audience and record it of the two sides? I offered that over here four and a half years ago. I offered that to the Andrews University uh, website. So far, no takers. Because, uh, you know, if I'm wrong, show me the evidence. I'll follow. I want to follow the truth. I'm finite. I'm going to grow in understanding. But if you have positions that don't hold muster under the light, then you don't want to come into the light. So this is Great Controversy, page 495. I came across this commentary. I said, Leaving his place in the immediate presence of God, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels, working with mysterious secrecy. And for a time, concealing his real purposes under an appearance of reverence for God, he endeavored to excite dissatisfaction concerning the laws that governed heavenly beings, intimating that they uh, imposed unnecessary restraint. And then contrast it with Jesus before the Sanhedrin in John 18.20. Jesus speaking, I have spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. See the contrast. Yeah. So what do you learn when you find out about people going behind the scenes to misrepresent what somebody else teaches to try to obstruct? Christy and I were talking on the way over here today. We, we get emails, I get emails from all over the world about people who share this message in their churches being verbally misrepresented, attacked, and then driven out of the church and told they're not welcome. Told, if they were teaching a Sabbath school class, for instance, they are removed from their teaching. You can't teach if you're going to teach a picture of God like this. Uh, over and over again, I'm in li- hundreds of cases like this. I, don't, I haven't seen cases of people who would argue doing that to people who teach the other view. Because we're all about, hey, we present the truth in love and we leave people free. If you have another view, it's okay. We just want to dialogue about the view. We want to show the differences. Let's discuss. Because when, you're, when you have the truth... Truth doesn't get uncomfortable when people ask questions. Truth smiles. You notice every time they ask questions, they came with these hard, hard questions to Jesus. Like they were so tricky questions. It didn't throw them a bit. But when he started putting questions back at them, they got uncomfortable. So we got to kill this guy. Because it exposed their hypocrisy, exposed the system didn't work. And Jesus said... After John 3.16 and 17, you know John 3.16 and 17, starting in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already. Why does he stand condemned already? Because that's, that's our condition. We're born with a terminal condition. So it's basically saying, he who takes the remedy will not die of his terminal condition. He who does not take the remedy is already terminal. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light 
because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it might be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You see, there's a big difference between those who you know, operate secretly behind the scenes in the openness of, of, of truth. Could it be that they don't come into the light? One of the reasons they don't come into the light is because they actually have a lie in their head about God and that they're afraid to come into his presence because they actually believe this idea that God must punish sin and, and if I'm truthful about what I've done and I come into the light, he'll, have to, he'll hate me and he'll kill me. Could this be one of the reasons they don't come into the light? I think it's more likely that, they're, that they have a streak of cowardice in the group think that they're a part of. They don't want to be singled out or excluded or excommunicated. I think that, that's a good point, really, that social peer concern and pressure. Yeah. But what happens if, you're, if you, your cholesterol is high and your doctor advised you to stop eating all the Big Macs and fries you've been eating and to get on a healthier diet, but you didn't do it. You didn't do it. Um, but you continue, continued eating all that food. Would you want to go back to your doctor if you believed that he would torture and kill you for not obeying him if he found out? Seriously. I mean, we laugh at that. You laugh. It's ridiculous. But you understand that's exactly what is being taught. Here's my instructions. If you don't do it, I will torture and kill you. Well, then why do I want to come to you? This week on that online blog, I've, I've, I discovered a nuance that I hadn't really seen before. And it came out very clearly. You see, what we teach is that that we want to come back to love the God who Jesus revealed so much that we trust him with our lives. And we say like Jesus did, into your hands, Father, I surrender my spirit. I trust you with my life. The people that hold that view do not hold that. They do not trust God. What their security is in, and this is what they said, and it's in writing, their security is in a payment that Jesus has made to God to protect them from God. We trust our life in God's hands, and that gives us security because we know him. This life eternally might know you. Their security is in the legal payment Jesus made to God to be protected from God. And this is why they're so vehement against our position, because our, our position takes away their payment, which takes away their security, and now they're terrified to actually stand in God's presence. And what does that tell you about the view of God they hold? That's, that, that is really the rubber on the road, as far as I could tell from these, this journal. Yes? Um, and there's a misconception that you know, our church leadership um, uses Ellen White really to support the view of a, of a stern God. But you know, if you read her writings, you know, she clearly supports exactly what this class teaches. Uh, yep. Steps of Christ you know, talks about um, you know, God set out to, to paint... Uh, I'm sorry, Satan set out to paint God as a harsh judge. And Jesus came to earth to show God's infinite love. That's right. That's exactly right. But this you have to delve deeply into her writings. And well, not the really. trajectory that occurred over her lifetime. I mean, if you, if you, her if you read Ste- Steps to... Oh, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Steps to Christ, I mean, it's, it's written all over the book. That's right. So in Wednesday's lesson, we're going to have a couple minutes left, Proverbs 2, 1 through 5, it says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So what are the conditions? If you went through this lesson this week, what are the conditions that one must have in order to find the knowledge of God? You have to have an open mind. Oh, man, exactly. You have to have a willingness, an open mind, a willingness to be taught. Right? Which means, and and to assimilate truth. How about after a willingness, do you have to actually apply your mind to understand it? I'm willing. Like your puppy dog is willing. You have a willing puppy dog. Or after the willingness, do you also have to have an application? God says in Isaiah, the name of our class comes from this. Isaiah 118. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet. Is there an application where we not only have a willingness, but then we contemplate and we think and we reason? In that same passage, if you look at the active words, you learn, you listen, you try, you plead, and you look. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. So it's more than just a will, but you have to have that willingness. You know, 
I wonder, do you think part of the problem is the language? You know how the Bible talks about God and, and Jesus as his son, and a lot of the stories are, you know, about how Jesus came and God sent him and he suffered and he died. And I think that, you know, it's easy to put God in the position of the parent who sent his son to do something he didn't... You know what I mean? I wonder something... I am convinced that this part of my development of understanding is the root diverging point is how do you understand God's law? In this blog we've had with them, they stated explicitly to me that while God does have natural laws that govern nature, his moral law is arbitrary without natural consequence. That's their view of his law. If you believe that, then that's why they diverge from what we teach, because they believe there is no natural consequence. They believe basically what Satan said, God, God, there's no problem with sin. There's nothing wrong with sin. There's only something wrong with God who punishes you for it. If he wouldn't punish us, then, then we could live forever in sin because there's nothing wrong with it. This is basically their view. That God, I mean, that just seems to be so illogical. I mean. <laughs> but that's, that's their operational level. That's where they're at. I used to operate there. If you want to go online and read the blog, and myself and Brad Cole and others have put in tremendous time uh, laying out the evidences of this. And I can tell you for those that we're back and forth with, it's like talking to a wall. They just don't comprehend. And they deny so much evidence in order to hold to that view. So I really do see, but, that, but, but it did come out eventually that these are the diverging points. That they, they deny God had, God's moral law is natural, an expression of his character. It is a system of rules that he's imposed. And that's why they have to hold him in the position of being executioner. But that's exactly Satan's allegation against God from the beginning. And they promote it. So, yes. I, I, John 3.3. 3. Jesus replied to Nicodemus, I can guarantee this truth. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. There you go. And, and I don't want to be in the position of saying those people are not born from above. That's very judgmental of me on their character, and I can't do that. But, but only God can give us insight. That's true. That's right. Look at what people tend to do. I mean, I've, I've worked with several people who've had gastric bypass surgeries, and I've, wor- I, I've worked with anorexic patients. You can put them in front of a mirror or show them pictures of themselves. They don't really see what they look like. They, uh, an anorexic person will think they're overweight, even though they look skeletal. In, a, in all reality, they're skeletal, but they don't, they don't see it. A gastric bypass patient always sees themselves as a heavier person. I wish you wouldn't have brought that up right at the closing, because there's so much I could tell you about anorexia and the delusions of anorexia and how that works. But we really don't. It takes about 10 minutes for me to walk you through that, but... It is not as, but the point here is they don't see reality for what it is. But there's a real system of reasons why they don't. Um, but that's the point you're making. They don't see the reality right before them. They're self-deceptive. It doesn't make sense to us. Okay. It doesn't make sense in Jesus' time why they wanted to kill him. It doesn't make sense now why they don't see it. You know? Okay, so I'm going to bring this, to wind it up to a close. And I wanted to really um, hit, hit some of the points on, on the wisdom. One was a willingness, application of the mind, a reaching the heart out to God. Uh, approaching the truth as if it value, it's valuable to you. You have to, have a, if you have to value it. Okay? And, um, and, and those things. And then what are the obstacles? Let me run through the obstacles real quick to being able to do this. Arrogance, being part of the chosen people who have the truth and therefore don't need to be teachable because we already know it. That shuts it down. That's why we, over and over again, we don't want to arrive at the truth. God is infinite. We're finite. We're always growing. We always want to be advancing. Believing the lie that the Bible is not to be thought about or contemplated uh, or understood, but merely taken it as it reads. The Bible said it. I believe that settles it. In this dialogue I've had with these people, over and over again, they keep saying, the Bible says it this way. It must be taken this way. We don't understand what it means. Uh, we don't have to. You're just, you're misinterpreting because you're trying to get a meaning out of it. And it doesn't say it that way. Like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, therefore God must have done so. Even though in another place, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And we, and we have to understand, well, what does it mean then? How do we put those together? No, we can't do that. The Bible said it, God must have done it. This obstructs. Studying in one's, on one's own through, or through human agencies disconnected from the enlightenment of, of the Holy Spirit. That's another obstacle. Valuing the defense of one's own preconceived or previously held beliefs system rather than a humble willingness to move beyond one's current understanding. And there's really people who are entrenched. I've taught this my whole life. <laughs> I've written 17 books on this. And I will prove it to be the ultimate truth. Uh, defending traditional and historic beliefs. And this is another. This is another. Every one of these. I saw it this week. 
Over and over again. Well, the, the reformers taught this. The reformers taught this. The reformers taught this. It didn't matter the reformers were coming out of such of a deep darkness and it was a movement forward. But that's where we want to end? We want to stop there? No. Truth is unfolding. Though it's, it's really amazing, some of these uh, mindsets that are being uh, perpetuated. And then what happens that uh, for those of you who hold this view, be prepared for people who hold that other view to project onto you that you're a thoughtless person, a mindless person, uh, a person who's got just narrow views and their, their view is so much more expansive, and that you are leading people away from Christ. This is what they say. But what do they say about Christ himself? We have a law. You disregard the law. We have so much more. We have so many more nuanced understandings. So we have all 600 and some rules that you don't abide by. And, uh, and you're leading people away from the institution. Um, they did the same thing. Yes, you're of your father the devil, they said. Our gracious heavenly father, you are so beautiful. And Jesus has revealed your true character, Lord. And we know that you and he are one, and we want to be brought back into that unity and fellowship that you've invited us to, to be one with you as you all are one. One in heart, one in mind, one in in character, to love your methods and principles and to be effective in sharing them. Lord, the world is really confused in a system of an imperial dictator, Lord, and and, uh, we just pray for empowerment and resources to be able to take this message forward to free more and more minds that the work can be done and that you will come. We pray in your holy name. Amen.